this morning, our boast is in you, Jesus. Our boast is not in who we are as people and what we've achieved. But Lord, our boast is in you and what you did for us at the cross. And Lord, today we're excited and expectant to know that you've not yet finished the work in us. But Lord, you are perfecting us. You are transforming us from the inside out. And Lord, this morning, I pray as I speak that you would take my words and you'd apply them to individual lives. Lord, that you would really change us so that we can represent you to a dying world in your fullness. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done in our lives. And Lord, we're expectant for our future in you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Well, it is good to see you. This is the sleep-in service. Yeah, you've all been able to tuck up in bed a little bit longer than the early starters at 9.30. And you know what? It's kind of the first time of doing a service in this really hot weather. And what I found out earlier is that I got really thirsty. So I drank a load of water before the service, not thinking about the time it would take for it to travel and flush through my system. So I've been hopping back and forth to the toilet because I haven't quite timed myself right with the intake of fluids. So um, hopefully I won't be doing that in the future. But do you know what? It is so, so good to be together. If this is the first service that you are joining us for since we've reopened, it is so lovely to see you. It looks a little bit different, but I love that when the family of God come together, as we come to worship him in spirit and in truth, the Bible declares that he is with us. He is here today. And he is going to use his word to encourage us. And you know, over recent weeks and months, we've been studying through the book of James together. And when I look at the book of James, the book of James is quite different to some of the other New Testament books. There are some books within the New Testament and their encouragement to us is warm and pastoral, telling us that we can make it, telling us that we're overcomers and we can go away and receive that truth and feel like, thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. The book of James is a bit different, though. I don't know whether you've noticed. It's like he's a bit of a straight talker. His words to us provide guidance, instruction, and the C word, correction. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes I shy away from correction. I don't like the thought of being corrected because it challenges me to examine who I really am. But James has no problem with being a straight talker. He has no problem of being sharp with his words to us. And it's not from a basis of anger, but it's out of a deep love. Because he says, do you know what? I want the best for you. And in the Jewish culture, as he was preaching and speaking to the Jews that were scattered, he could see that there were areas in their lives that perhaps weren't quite representing Jesus in the way that he'd died for them in their fullness. You know, they had great, nice-sounding professions, but sometimes their faith was a bit like candy floss. Bright, big, impressive but you bite into it 
and it easily dissolves. Not a lot of substance. So James, he, through his letter, encourages us to examine our faith, to see how pure our faith actually is. Have you ever heard the statement before that says, all that glitters is not gold? The people that James was speaking to often had a dazzling faith. They knew their scriptures. They went to church. They did all the rituals that would be expected of a follower of Jesus. But their faith had been joined to worldly customs. And he wanted to challenge that. He wanted to challenge them to check their faith. He wanted to challenge them to say, is there purity at the heart of your walk? Is there purity? Has Jesus, have you allowed him to truly transform you from the inside out? Or are you just playing religious games? There's an amazing story in ancient history of a goldsmith that was given gold by King Hero II in ancient Greece. And King Hero II's instruction to the goldsmith was to design and create a crown in the shape of a laurel wreath. And when he received this crown back from the goldsmith, King Hero was delighted until there came out rumors that the goldsmith had actually used other metals in creating that crown and had only um, encased it with gold on the outside. So Archimedes, not Archimedes, King Hero wanted to see whether this was the case. So he asked his cousin Archimedes, who was an intelligent, um, gifted mathematician and inventor, and he said, can you design a test to see whether this crown is made of pure gold, the pure gold that I gave the goldsmith? And he said, when you design this test, he said, I want this crown to remain intact. I don't want you to melt it down and I don't want you to destroy it in any way. And Archimedes spent many time thinking about how am I going to find out whether this crown is actually pure gold? And one day he was getting in the bath and as he got in the bath, he noticed that as he stepped into the bath, the level of the water rose. And at that moment, he had a genius idea. He thought to himself, if I can get a gold bar that was the equivalent weight of what was given by King Hero to the goldsmith, I can place it in water and see how much the volume of that water rises and how much water is displaced. He then said he would take the, gold, the crown and he would place it in that same container of water. If the crown didn't rise as much as it, as it, if the water did not rise as much as it did when the gold bar was placed in the water, Archimedes would know that that crown contained other metals other than gold. Archimedes conducted the test and sure enough, that goldsmith was found out to be dishonest. He had taken the gold given by the king, but he'd actually chosen to use inferior metals to create 
that crown and he'd pocketed the rest of his gold for himself. He was dishonest. Just as Archimedes had designed a simple, undestructive test to actually be able to check the composition of that crown, James begins to introduce us to the fact that God actually gives us tests, designs simple, undestructive tests to test the purity of our faith. These tests aren't designed to tear us down. These tests are actually designed to build us up. You see, with a test, a test will reveal the impurities. And God wants to reveal the impurities in our faith, not because he wants to go down heavy on us, but because he wants to come alongside us, because he wants to show us, listen, there's a better future for you. You don't have to have your faith that's filled with impurities. I want you to have a faith that is pure, a faith that is representative of what Jesus did and accomplished on the cross. So in James chapter 2, we see that he was going to conduct a test as to how two visitors were going to be treated in church that day. James 2, verse 1 to 4 in the Amplified reads this. My fellow believers, do not practice your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of partiality toward people. Show no favoritism, no prejudice, no snobbery. For if a man comes into your meeting place wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in dirty clothes also comes in and you pay special attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and, says, and you say to him, you sit here in this good seat and you tell the poor man, you stand over there or sit down on the floor by my footstool Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with wrong motives? You know, when I read that passage, I found it really sobering because James isn't writing this letter to unbelievers in the way that they treat other people. James is writing this passage to followers of Jesus. And he's almost like pulling back the curtain and doing a wake-up call and saying, hey, you profess Jesus, but what's this all about? You know, their faith was like gold, dazzling, but actually it was filled with composition of a whole lot of other things, worldly systems that were going on. The way that the world treated people was actually what he was observing in the church of God. This test was showing the church that they had no problem in favouring the rich and despising the poor. This test was actually revealing the impurities of their faith. And it fell so short, their actions, from the gold bar standard of what God had laid out in his word. And really, they had allowed the thoughts and the behaviors of society to form the basis from which they would treat other people. 
As believers, we need to be so careful that we do not allow the ways of our society to change and fashion the way that we think and the way that we act towards others. In Romans 12, 2, it says this, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Our Christ life is not about allowing the world to form and fashion our views, but it's about letting Christ transform us from the inside out and allowing his nature to become our nature. If we read again from James 2, verse 1, it says this, My fellow believers, do not practice your faith in in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, with an attitude of partiality towards people. Show no favoritism, no prejudice, no snobbery. So what's partiality? It's not really a word we use often, but partiality is showing favoritism or bias towards somebody. And partiality is showing prejudice and bias against somebody. So it's two flip sides of the coin, favoritism towards, prejudice against. And partiality can show itself in so many forms within the culture and the society that we live in. There can be racial prejudice and partiality, cultural. There can be um, partiality regarding your background, your culture, where you lived, where you've grown up, your beliefs your education, your age, and even if you're male or female. Partiality has the ability to impact every sphere of our lives. But here's the thing. James is revealing to the church that partiality is wrong. So why is it such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal to James? The reason it's a big deal is because it elevates one person above another. And that is not the heart of God. Deuteronomy 10 verse 17 says this, He is the great God, the almighty and awesome God, who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. God is never unjust. He is never unfair. He is never prejudiced. And he doesn't have favorites. And just like it was written and documented in Deuteronomy, nothing's changed in the heart of God towards his people. He says he is an impartial God. He does not like partiality. Why? Because it's a sin and it absolutely violates God's law of love that he's commanded us to live in. James 2 verse 8 says, goes on to say this, if however you are really fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is, if you have an unselfish concern for others and do things for their benefit, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, prejudice, 
favoritism. You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as offenders. Jesus didn't die on the cross in vain. He died so that heaven's love would reach humanity and that we would find new life in him. And how does it look to Jesus when he gave his life so freely for all of us and we profess to be followers of him, yet we don't love in the way that God's instructed us to love? We continue to love and treat people in our old way and in our old nature. You see, prejudice insults people that are made in God's image. God's made every one of us here today, everyone on this planet who has ever lived and will ever live in the future, every one of us have been created with equal value before God. I love how David pens God's thoughts towards us as his creation. He says this in Psalm 139, verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them even came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. So when we show prejudice to somebody, we're actually insulting the work mission of God because it was in God's heart to create us the way that he did. All different nations, all different races, all different shapes, all different sizes, all different cultures. That was in the heart of God. He didn't want to create robots, carbon copies of each other. No, he wanted to display his glory. He wanted to display the diversity of everything that was within him. And he wanted that to be represented in his people who he loves so dearly. He wanted us to look so wonderful, so different from one another and to celebrate one another because we are an outflow of God's love. Each one of us came from the heart of God and he values and loves us so much. Not one of us is an accident. He didn't make your color by accident. He didn't make your height by accident. He didn't place you in the nation that you were born in by accident. No, God predestined you and where you would arrive in whatever season of life, he predestined you to be there and he wanted your life to be an expression of his love to humanity. So when we have prejudice, we are actually saying as people that we are proud because we're saying, God, you got it wrong. You should have made everyone like me. That's what pride is. That is when you're prejudiced, you're actually full of pride. And you're actually full of ignorance as well. 
because we're to have the wisdom of God as believers living inside of us. James 3, 17 to 18 says this, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure, it is also peace-loving, it is gentle at all times and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism or partiality and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Prejudice is not planting seeds of peace. Favoritism is not planting seeds of of faith, um, of peace. So if we show favorites, if we are prejudiced, we are displaying and revealing that we've not allowed the character of God to work through us. We've not allowed that word of God to change us from the inside out because prejudice is very superficial. It's making an assumption based on an external. And it goes the same with favoritism. Favoritism is a byproduct of selfish motivation. Why do we have favorites? Because God doesn't have favorites. Often we treat people with favoritism because we think they'll maybe get us to where we want to go. That's what happened in James. As the rich man came in, who was on the welcome team thinking, well, he looks mighty fine. I wonder where his holiday home is positioned. Come by here, follow me. Come sit on the front seat. We've got a lovely space for you. Were they thinking in the back of their minds, what kind of friend will he be? Will he take me out to a restaurant after dinner, uh, after church? What's he, what gifts is he going to shower we with? And then there's the poor man that comes in. And his clothes are dirty. Sit over there. Go on, just sit there. I haven't got a seat for you. There you go, sit on the floor. That was what was happening. Because in that culture, the Jews were vying for position. They were vying for recognition. They wanted to be seen to be the teacher. They wanted to have the name, the title. And do you know what? Not a lot of things have changed in this day and age, is there? People will show favoritism towards people because they're thinking, what can I get from that person? Have you ever been on the receiving end of favoritism or prejudice? Have you ever thought, why did they say that? Why did they treat me different to somebody else that came in? Why were they so embracing of me when they don't even know me? Do they want what I've got? When you're on the receiving end of prejudice and favoritism, it leaves you feeling awful. It's not a nice feeling. And James hits this. He hits this in the Christians and says, this plays no part in our walk of faith. We don't want to just be people that know the scripture, that go to church, that attend connect group, that go to Bible studies, that pray all the time. No, we've got to outflow our faith through purity in the way that we treat other people. You know, sadly, as humans, because of sin, 
prejudice and favoritism come quite easy to us. That's what sin does. Never God's plan. And that's why we need to ask Jesus to help us live out the way that he has called for us to live out. You see, when we ask Jesus into our lives, he says he transforms us. He changes us from the inside out. And we need to choose to clothe ourselves in Christ Jesus and allow him to change us. Paul says in Galatians 3.26, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When Paul wrote this passage of scripture, he was radical. He was living in a culture that was segregated, that was divided, that had pigeonholed people based on their background, their race, their culture, their beliefs, their age, their sex. He was living in the heart of it and he has to stand up and he has to bring direction and clarity to the people of God. And he said, hang on. This is all changed now. Now that we've asked Jesus into our lives, forget labeling yourself as this and that. Forget labeling yourself and putting yourself and putting other people into these boxes. No, we identify by one thing and one thing only, and that is that we are children of God. We do not basis ourselves on any other thing than we are a child of God. So you may say, Faye, how does this relate to me today? I'm not racist. I wouldn't say that I've got a problem with people. The thing is, prejudice can appear through our lives in many subtle ways. And we need to ask Jesus to test us. Nobody wants to go through a test, do they? But do you know what? Sometimes it's only when we're tested that we actually find out what we're really made of. And we need to ask Jesus to help show us. Because prejudice can be something like this. Judging somebody because they dress differently to what you do. Their hair is done in a way they're like, oh. Prejudice may come in the form of the way that we view somebody older or younger than us. They don't have a clue what they're talking about. They know nothing. How do we treat around people or how do we act around people that have more money than us or have less money than us? And how do we treat somebody that is a cleaner is it different to a CEO? Do we talk to them different? When has it ever been right when somebody's struggling academically to call them dumb? Or when somebody's intelligent to call them a nerd or a freak? Why are those labels ever right? You see, prejudice 
can be so subtle. Somebody doesn't look the same. Somebody doesn't act the same as we do. So we just, we quickly give a prejudice judgment because they're not the same as me. And it's wrong. God changes us from the inside out. But often we still judge people from the outside in. And Jesus was always dealing with this and warned the religious leaders in his days. He says in John 7, 24, look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. You see, God wants us to have a faith that is pure. And the mark of that purity is in the way that we treat others. 1 John 4, 20 says this, if someone says, I love God, but he hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people, we can see, how can we love God who we cannot see? You know, this is a big deal to God. And what I love about the Bible is that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat the state that we find ourselves in hum as humans. The Bible actually shows us people down through the centuries that have faced these same things, that have struggled with prejudice, they've struggled with partiality, they have shown favorites to people. And the Bible doesn't say, oh, we'll sweep that under the carpet, pretend, pretend that never happened. No, God says, look. Look, this has been happening and I show you this to say, I'm here to walk you through this, but I'm not going to ignore it. Let's get to the heart of the matter and let's deal with what's at the core of our heart. Let's really allow God to change us from the inside out. You know, Jesus faced prejudice at the hands of the religious leaders of that time. They rejected him. He came from the wrong city, the city of Nazareth. He wasn't a graduate of their accepted schools. He didn't have any approval of a person in power. He didn't have any money or wealth. And his followers were a nondescript mob of tax collectors and sinners. Yet God said he was the very glory of God. But man rejected him. See, man at the heart has sin. And if we allow sin to dominate our thoughts and our actions, we're going to be missing out. Not only are we hurting other people, but we're actually hurting ourselves as well. And you look in the New Testament, and throughout the New Testament, you see that people struggled. You only have to take Peter, for instance. He thought the gospel was only for the Jews, there was no way he was going to go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, to talk about this. Oh no, they weren't good enough. The Jews were his favorites. The Jews, he had racial pride for the Jews. And God had to come to him in a dream and say, you're wrong, Peter. What you're doing is wrong. And he had to show him that the gospel was not just for the Jews, God's chosen people, but it was for everyone. This gospel of love was for everyone, whether they were Jews, whether they were not Jews. And at the end of the day, in Acts 10.34, Peter saw sense because he said, then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. 
And Peter's walk through prejudice wasn't just a one-time thing and he got it right. No, God had to work with him over his lifetime. But that's the great thing about God. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't say, oh gosh, again, right to the naughty corner. I'm moving on to someone else. He's like, no, come on. Come on, we're going to work this out. Come on, I'm going to perfect you into my image. Come on, we can do this if we've got a heart that's teachable and open. You know, Paul in his letters actually had to speak to the Corinthian church because of the way that they were about to receive and treat Timothy and the way they had treated Timothy, who was a young preacher. And it says this in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 10. When Timothy comes, don't intimidate him. Like, this is the church he's speaking to. Like, he's having to say, don't intimidate Timothy. That's kind of showing me this is Christians behaving badly. Don't intimidate him. He is doing the Lord's work just as I am. So don't let anyone treat him with contempt. That's got the big prejudice word right over it there. And he's having to say to the Corinthian church, not good enough. Not good enough. This is not the way that you act. Just because he's younger than you, you receive him the way that you receive me. And he had to encourage Timothy in the midst of all of this prejudice that it was faced his way. And he had to say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. See, people wanted to judge him by surface appearance. But Paul said, no, you show him who you are at the core. Don't allow people to label you based on what you look at. You allow your life to demonstrate the work of God within you. You allow the life of God within you to burst forth and let people see the purity of your faith, which is not based on external appearances. So the question really is, prejudice, Favoritism, partiality is in us. We may not think it is, but it is. If the Bible had to talk about it loads, listen. I don't think that this, the church in this culture, the church in this time and era has got over themselves. Nothing's new under the sun. If the Bible's talking about it, he knows it's going to be prevalent where we are today. So how do we root out the sin of partiality from our lives? The answer is simple. The walking through of it. Yeah, it's a work in progress. The way that we do it is we learn to see people through the eyes of God. That's simple, hey? Learn to see people through the eyes of God. But that doesn't come natural to us. And that means that God is going to come alongside us to help us. He's going to help us to see people through the eyes of God because that's what he does. He takes us, he brings us close, and he transforms us from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 3.18 describes this journey of transformation like this. And the Lord who is spirit makes us more and more like him 
as we are changed into his glorious image. God is in the process of changing and transforming us into his glorious image. So how does God see? Well, 1 Samuel 16, 7 says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We've got to make a decision to look at the heart and stop judging by external appearances. Studies show that within 30 seconds, people make a judgment on you. It's interesting, we're, we're used to the phrase, don't judge a book by its cover, but we do it all day long. We judge houses by their curb appeal, and we judge people by the way they look, the way they dress, and how they talk. But the Bible says stop doing that because it's wrong. Studies may show it, but that is not what's been laid up for you and I as followers of Jesus. What we've got to do is look at everyone through the eyes of Jesus. Jesus completely broke down and through all of the walls of division when he walked on earth. The people around him, they had differing views. They were quick to make their judgments, but Jesus never did. And even his enemies noticed that about his life. Because in Matthew twenty-two sixteen, 16, he said this. They said this of him. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Jesus wasn't impressed by riches or social status. Look at that little old woman that came to church to give a tiny coin. In Jesus' eyes, he, she was far greater than the Pharisees that walked in with their pockets loaded with money, throwing it out for everyone to see. No, Jesus wasn't interested in that. He was interested in what that little lady did. Jesus didn't judge people based on gender or religion. You know, it baffled the disciples when Jesus stopped through Samaria to talk to the woman at the well. Because there was great conflict between the Jews and those that lived in Samaria. And they couldn't believe that he stopped to speak to her. And even worse, she actually became one of the forerunning evangelists of the gospel, a woman. In that culture, unheard of. It's all about the man. A woman was belittled. A woman wasn't thought highly of, but Jesus thought highly of her. Jesus thought highly of her. He wasn't interested in her, in her gender and he wasn't interested in her religion. Jesus was interested in the future that he had for her when she would place her faith and trust in him. Jesus also embraced people of all ages, and all and saw potential in everyone. He welcomed the children, didn't he? Well, the disciples were like, go away, go away. But Jesus welcomed them to him and he said, no, come stay. 
He received the little boy's lunch and did a miracle and fed 5,000. Matthew, who actually wrote the gospel of Matthew, when Jesus called him to be a disciple, his disciple, he was a dishonest tax collector. But Jesus saw potential in him. Jesus used to like having meals with sinners. Zacchaeus was changed and transformed because of a meal with Jesus. You see, with Jesus, the rejected are accepted. The condemned are forgiven and the broken were healed. And we need to relate to people based on God's plan for them and not on our human merit or social status. So how does God love us? He loves us unconditionally, freely, completely and continually. It doesn't matter where we've come from. It doesn't matter what we've done in our past. God loves us. We're flawed. We're imperfect. But God's love to us remains the same. And that's how we should love people too, unconditionally, freely, completely, and continually. Love doesn't mean that we approve of everything that somebody does. Jesus doesn't approve probably of a lot of the stuff that we do, but he still loves us. We fall, we stumble, we mess up, but his love remains faithful. Jesus is the link between us and others. If a person is a Christian, we can accept them because Christ lives in them. And if a person is not a Christian, we can receive them because Christ died for them. So it doesn't matter what camp somebody is in, in Christ or outside of Christ, the love of God can accept and the love of God can receive because Jesus paid the ultimate price in giving his life for each one of us on the cross. You just have to look at the signs that we've got on the walls of church. Welcome home, come as you are. Those are statements that say it doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. We want to welcome you and we want you to be part of this home. Because Ephesians 2.20 says God is building a home and he's using us all irrespective of how we got here in what he is building. When we came in, come as you are. That was something that Pastor Ray years ago had firmly believed is a value of our house. Because none of us when we came in had it all together. We're, and a lot of us still don't have it all together. Let's be honest, we're works in progress, hey? But no, God takes us as we are. And then he does the work of changing and transforming us. We come in and God changes us. But we didn't have to clean up our act before we came to church. And we don't expect anybody else to do that. That is only a work of God in our lives. So this morning, as we look about the purity of our faith. I want us to think about the fact that our purity of faith and love of, in Jesus is not based on the talk that we talk. It's not based on the scriptures we know. It's not based on any of that. The purity of our faith 
is all in the walk that we walk, the way that we treat others. James 2.17 says this, you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and it's useless. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says this before he goes on to unveil that beautiful passage about what love is. And I'll summarize it by saying this. He says, I can know a lot. I can accomplish, accomplish a lot. I can help a lot of people. But if I don't have love, I'm like a clanging cymbal and I have nothing. And what I have doesn't amount to much. The genuine test of our faith in Jesus is how we treat people. One person said, the way that we love the person we like the least is the way that we love Jesus the most. This Christian life is exciting. God changes us. And we are now his representatives here on earth we get to demonstrate to the world around us what our faith is all about. A genuine faith that's pure to the heart and to the core. Not some glitzy, dazzling thing that professes something, but it's like candy floss dissolves quickly. It's made up of other, less inferior composites. No, our faith is genuine in the way that we treat others. And my encouragement for each of us today would be to ask the Lord to show us where we're at. Where are we at in relation to this whole area of treating others? Do we struggle with prejudice? Do we have favorites? Let's allow the Holy Spirit to show us because he wants to conform us to his image. He doesn't want to leave us where we are. He wants that new nature, the clothes of Christ, to be those things that we put on to walk our daily life by. I'm going to pray for us right now as the team come. Lord, I thank you that you're a good God. Lord, I thank you that you are a God of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh chances. And Lord, thank you that you, you never leave us where we are, but you have a future prepared for us. And Lord, I pray today that, Lord, through your word, you would show us where we're at. Lord, you would help us. We want to reveal your nature in us to the world that we meet. We don't want to demonstrate thought patterns and actions that aren't representative of you, Lord. So help us. Help us love in purity. Lord, help us see people the way that you see them. Lord, thank you for each person here today. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen.